Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, The Life of Elijah, which is a study on Elijah's life found in 1 Kings. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit christianrenewalhhi.org. Father, we believe your word is holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant. God, as we come to study it this morning, we ask that you would speak, Holy Spirit. Father, nobody came to hear my intellect or my wittiness or there's nothing eternal that can come from me. God, if something's going to happen here that changes lives, you're going to have to be present in it. Holy Spirit, we honor you. Speak, we pray. Speak, we pray. We love you, Holy Spirit. We welcome you as a house, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Guard my lips, God. Purify my lips. Purify my heart. Lord, anything that comes out of my mouth that is not from you, I pray it would pass through one ear and out the other. But every word that's from your heart, God, I pray that it would pierce. For your glory, Jesus. Father, I've been burdened to pray this week the words of John the Baptist when he said that Jesus must increase as he decreases. Lord, I just pray, in this time, Lord God, I pray I would decrease and Jesus would increase. Lord, I'm not asking that anyone remember me, but I pray that when we leave this house, we remember the presence of the Holy Spirit and the words that he spoke to our hearts. Somebody say amen. Amen. I wanted to read you this quote. This is from Andrew Bonar. Andrew Bonar. Oh, brother, pray, he's writing a friend. Oh, brother, pray in spite of Satan. Pray, spend hours in prayer. Rather neglect friends than not pray. Rather fast than lose breakfast, dinner, supper, and sleep too than not pray. We must not talk about prayer. We must pray in right earnest. The Lord is near. He comes softly while the virgins slumber. That's a reference to the parable that Michelle shared with us a few weeks ago. Andrew Bonar was a Scottish minister who was used alongside his closest friend, um, Robert Murray McShane, um, in what's called the, the Kilsyth Revival of 1839-1840. Robert Murray McShane made a profound impact on history, although he only lived to the age of 29. And Bonar was broken over McShane's death. McShane seemed to... Uh, they, McShane and Bonar graduated at the same time, and they both pursued ministry at the same time. Robert Murray McShane got a job as a pastor right away, and Bonar, it took him some time. There was a season of struggling and wrestling. Um, he seemed to get passed over for every church that needed a pastor. Um, and, and Bonar always, at least from Bonar's diary, he, he, he really honored McShane. He felt discipled by McShane. Robert Murray McShane, again, it died at the age of 29, but even from the time Andrew Bonar and McShane met, McShane had issues with his lungs and his breathing, and so Bonar would preach for McShane while he was struggling physically. When, Andrew, or when, when Robert Murray McShane passed, it was Bonar who, who wrote his biography, and it was largely about the fact that, that, that Robert Murray McShane was a, was a man of deep prayer, and in Bonar's diary, he's um, rather vulnerable and transparent. Um, and he'll say on some days, Bonar will say in his diary, his, his kids compiled it after his death. 
Bernard will say things like, today I prevailed in prayer. I spent hours in prayer before the Lord, and God really moved and blessed me with a great spirit of prayer. And then some days he'll say things like, I went to pray today and felt I was in the flesh. I had no energy, no zeal. My prayer life felt dull. Um, just this real transparency. I think that if we were all honest, we would probably say that that's what our prayer life feels like sometimes. Some days it feels like God puts his hand on me as I pray, and some days it feels like I'm... Oh, John Kilpatrick wrote a book called When the Heavens Are Brass. It feels like the heavens are brass some days. But God used Murray McShane and used Andrew Bonar in a great revival in the year 1839. Souls were saved. Communities were turned upside down. But there was serious prayer and serious brokenness that paved the way. Andrew Bonar wrote in his diary this. He said, he said, enabled to spend nearly the whole day in prayer, praise and confession, I was led to deep humiliation for our church and prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Ghost on my people. I spread out several promises before the Lord, and my heart was sore with desire and yet glad with the expectation of what this day may obtain for me. But I find true what Samuel Rutherford wrote, a bed watered with tears, a throat dry with praying, eyes a fountain of tears for the sins of the land are rarely to be found among us. During Andrew Bonar's season of, of waiting, again, he graduated school with a theology degree, and his best friend gets a job as pastor right away, and he has this, uh, this season of preaching, and he would go visit prisoners and sick, but nobody would hire him. He didn't have uh, a pastoral position, so his preaching was kind of scattered. It was during that season in his diary, he wrote that he was recommended a book called Elijah the Tishbite. And he wrote in his diary on multiple occasions that this book moved him deeply to meditate upon the life of Elijah. Friday, August 17th, 1838, he wrote, Felt that in the sanctuary we should stand to speak with deep horror of sin and our souls and zeal for God like Elijah. We should stand to speak with deep horror of sin in our souls and zeal for God like Elijah. Bonar said that he saw in the life of Elijah a deep horror of sin. In Elijah, he found zeal for God. In Elijah, we find boldness to confront the decay, the spiritual decay of our society. In Elijah, we find faith, like profound faith and confidence in God. Bonar embraced these concepts. In a young season of his life, he's reading Elijah, meditating on Elijah, and he embraces these concepts of Elijah's life. And, and it, to some extent, it shapes the way that he does ministry. Now, Elijah is a profoundly important biblical character. He becomes a model or a pattern. Luke chapter 1, Gabriel tells Zechariah that his son, whom he should name John, would go before the Lord in the spirit of power and of Elijah. Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, he spoke with two men. Do you remember? He spoke with Moses and he spoke with Elijah. Malachi prophesied that the end times would be marked with the coming of Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5 through 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet for the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree, with a decree of utter destruction. On the cross, Jesus um, cries out to God in Hebrew. And the crowd assumes that he was calling for Elijah. Elijah was one of two men who never experienced natural death. Genesis 5.24 says that Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. Elijah was caught up in a chariot of fire, escorted into the presence of God. 
I say all this to say that Elijah's story is very important to the overarching scriptural narrative. He's a, he's a type. He's a, he's a persona that comes forth in the scripture. The prophets thought on his life. At least Malachi thought on his life, meditated on his life. John the Baptist definitely meditated on the life of Elijah. So much so that John the Baptist dressed like Elijah when he came out. The first century Jews thought maybe Jesus was Elijah. Do you remember Jesus says um, in, in Mark 8, he says to his disciples, Who do they say that I am? Disciples answer, Mark 8, 28. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. So, John the Baptist meditates deeply on the life of Elijah. The prophets meditate deeply on the life of Elijah. The first century cultural context, immediate cultural context of the life of Jesus, thought much of Elijah. They thought he was calling Elijah on the cross. They thought he was Elijah. James The half-brother of Jesus in chapter 5, verse 17 of his epistle says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit, bore its fruit. James wrote, Elijah was a man with weakness like you. Weakness like me, like Andrew Bonar, John Murray McShane, Elijah was a man with brokenness and weakness, yet God used him in miraculous, significant ways that shaped entire nations. Elijah at times will pray and ask God to end his life. He'll run in fear and anxiety. Sometimes Elijah feels like quitting. I think if you're honest, some days we feel like quitting. Elijah also calls fire down from heaven. Elijah raises the dead. James says Elijah was no superhuman. He was broken, emotional, frustrated, passionate, weak, like you and like me. A man with a nature like ours, beset with weakness. But God was pleased to use him. I've told you before that James, the half-brother of Jesus, um, was martyred. He was thrown down from the top of the temple and... um, as he was, uh, his body was laid, being prepared to, uh, to be buried, all of the young men and women in the first century church came by and they wanted to touch James' knees. They touched his knees. And history tells us that James was known as Camel Knee James um, because his knees were so calloused and so um, deformed from how much time he spent on his knees in prayer. Now, I've told you before that when James goes to teach on prayer, James talks about Elijah. That James meditated on the life of Elijah, on the fact that Elijah was weak, broken, tired, yet in his prayer life, God used him in power. So in James's meditation on the life of Elijah, James decides that he's going to pray, and James prays so much that his knees are literally broken from the impact that Elijah's testimony had on his life. Men of God of old have always meditated on the life of Elijah. Life's, the life of Elijah has shaped their history, shaped their trajectory. And so over the next several weeks, I want us to spend time meditating on the life of Elijah. I want Elijah's life to shape you. I want it to press you, challenge you. So let's begin to read. I want to start in 1 Kings chapter 16 and give you a little bit of context. And then we'll work into the introduction of Elijah in, in 1 Kings chapter 17. 1629. In the 38th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. 
And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, who was the... Uh, who was believed to be the mother of Baal. He made a, an idol to this uh, other false god. And this next line um, in 1 Kings 16 is so important to the biblical narrative. It's especially important to the context of the life of Elijah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So in the, in the days of Elijah, in the life of Elijah, the king did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all other kings who were before him. In his days, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram his first and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun. And so um, Ahab married Jezebel, a foreign princess, who most likely, scholars say, was a cultic leader in the house of Baal, that she would have been, typically the daughter of the king, the princess, would have been um, like a high priestess in the house of Baal. So he marries a high priestess of Baal, most likely. He builds an altar to Ashura, and he allows, they even rebuild the city of Jericho, which was forbidden to be rebuilt during the conquest of Joshua. Joshua 6, verse 26, Joshua laid an oath on them at the time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city of Jericho. So remember, Joshua brings Israel into the land of Canaan. And, and the word was that Jericho should never be rebuilt. Joshua said, At the cost of the firstborn shall he lay its foundation. At the cost of the youngest son shall he set up its gates. And so in, in, in Elijah's time, they rebuild Jericho at the cost of Hile of Bethel's first son. Now, chapter 17, verse 1. In this day of evil, this cultural context of spiritual decay, where the God of Israel, who has delivered Israel from the hands of Egypt, led them through the wilderness, providing for them supernaturally. The God of Israel who led Joshua in the conquest and brought them into this promised land. The God of Israel who used David, that great King David, who, who blessed Solomon with incredible wisdom. The God who has been faithful to Israel is now totally abandoned and totally rejected. And the scripture says in chapter 16 that God is more angry with Israel than he's ever been. Chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishb in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, him being Elijah. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith which is east of Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Verse 7 says, After a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. So chapter 16 gives us this history of Ahab. Ahab has angered the God of Israel more so than any other king before him. Ahab is serving false gods. 
chapter 17, Elijah is introduced into the narrative, but Elijah is given no history, no context. We know nothing of Elijah. We know where he's from. We don't know where he grew up. We don't know when he was called, how God spoke to him. Elijah just appears. And he appears with the primary purpose of confronting the wicked king of Ahab. And this is quite a prophetic picture, and this is a model that we'll see in Scripture time and time again. As you read the narrative, and Elijah steps in without any kind of like context, where did you come from? He just kind of interrupts the story. It's like God uses Elijah just to interrupt what Ahab was doing. The reader is read to question, why is Elijah not given an introduction? You're, you're led to ask questions like, where has Elijah been? Does Ahab know Elijah? Does Ahab know who Elijah is? Has Ahab ever seen Elijah, heard of Elijah? It doesn't seem to me that Elijah participated in public life. Elijah says, I stand before the Lord, the God of Israel. Elijah makes a claim in his introduction to interrupt the narrative that he belongs solely to the God of Israel. He belongs only to Yahweh. It's actually what the name Elijah means. Yahweh is my God. Ahab belongs to Baal. Baal, the word Baal, the idea of Baal is Baal means master. And Ahab has been mastered by a false god. Ahab spends his time in the temple of Baal, worshiping Asherah. But not Elijah. Elijah has certainly not participated in Baal worship. He's had nothing to do with the sacrifices or festivals. He has not joined in the prostitution that often surrounds pagan worship. He likely lived absent from what was considered normal cultural life in Israel in his day. Elijah was absent. Who was Elijah? Where did he come from? Elijah and Ahab do not frequent the same social settings. They don't eat at the same restaurants. They don't have mutual friends. They don't live in the same circles. Ahab belongs to Baal. His festivals, his rhythm of life belongs to the worship of Baal. And Elijah belongs to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And Elijah will not participate in propagating the message of Baal. Elijah is consecrated unto God. James makes it clear to us that Elijah spent great seasons of prayer. Elijah prayed about the spiritual and cultural climate of Israel. Elijah spent enough time with God, enough time alone with God, that he understood God's frustration with Israel. Again, the text says that God is more frustrated with Israel than he has ever been. And Elijah understands that. Elijah carries the frustration of God. Elijah has been alone with God, has thought, pondered on the spiritual context which he's found himself in. And Elijah is frustrated. Elijah is jealous for the glory of the God of Israel. And Elijah comes out of his solitude, out of his being alone with God, to declare to the king of Ahab what the God of Israel would say. And John the Baptist is called a type of Elijah. John the Baptist lives in the desert, separated and alone with God. He comes out of his solitude with his heart on fire and a message that cuts with a blade that has been sharpened by seasons of loneliness and prayer. John the Baptist steps out of the wilderness, steps into society and declares with anointing and power and authority, you have walked away from the living God. 
And that's what's going on here. While the majority of Israel is rejecting God, God has a man hidden away whose heart belongs fully to him. And that man will be used of God to bring justice to the land. When it seems like all is doomed and there is no hope of godliness, no hope of revival, no hope of awakening, when there is no righteousness in the land, no prayer in the land, Elijah seemingly appears out of thin air. And don't be surprised if God does it again. As our national culture turns its back on God, you can be certain that there is a holy remnant living alone and consecrated, radically devoted to fasting and prayer. They may be called fanatics. They may be labeled as religious for living above the standard. They may be told that they're too serious and they need to lighten up a bit. But there is a remnant hidden in a way that at some point will step out into the public eye and declare the truth of God. And I've I've seen a few and I've known a few of them. I've heard a lot of preaching. I've read a lot of um, our modern Christian books and many of our modern Christian writing is encouraging and helpful and useful. But every now and again, I hear a voice that cuts and there's there's a there's a tone that a man or woman who's been alone with God carries. There's there's a message that's sharp. That, that stirs me, that, that pokes and prods at the staleness of my heart. Every now and then I hear a man, a woman, young or old, it doesn't matter. The age or the race, doesn't the, the socioeconomic class, none of that matters. There's, there's a presence of God on young, old, black, white, Hispanic, Asian men and women who have been alone with God. And every now and then it's like I catch a glimpse of this Elijah-like remnant who has been hidden away. No, they're not in the limelight, but when they speak by God, you know you've heard from him. You pick up a book of A.W. Tozer's and you recognize immediately that the man has been alone with God. I believe with all my heart that Elijah types still exist. I think they're largely unseen. I long with all of my heart to be like them. I'm frustrated with my own tendencies to grow stale and to get callous. But when a nation is turned, when God decides to intervene, there's always an Elijah type who steps out of solitude and into the public eye, confronting the, the world with the sharp word of God. Elijah was a man who spent a lot of time alone with God. John the Baptist was a man who lived in the wilderness alone with God. Andrew Bonar spent his time alone with God. I'd rather miss breakfast, lunch, and dinner than miss prayer. How's your time alone with God this morning? How's your solitude this morning? Next. Notice Elijah's unique claim to authority. Elijah, again, who is he? We don't know. Does the king know who Elijah is? We don't know. Elijah steps toe-to-toe with the king, Ahab, looks him to the eye and says, there will be no rain, not even dew on the ground. You'll wake up in the morning and the grass will be dry until I say so. Now, Baal worshipers believed that Baal was the storm god who made the rain. Elijah is confronting their theology. Elijah is spitting on their doctrine. Elijah says, you worship the rain God. I tell you that it will not rain until I say so. 
And Elijah is asserting his own theological conviction that the God of Israel is the creator of all things. He is the uncreated creator. He is the sovereign over the entire universe, the things seen and things unseen. There is one God and to him belongs all authority. Many scholars at this point say that Elijah is, 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 is like Moses. He's almost a type of Moses in that Moses confronts Pharaoh and in Moses' confrontation of Pharaoh, he's also confronting the pagan gods that Moses served. And so here in Elijah's confrontation, he's not just confronting Ahab, he's confronting Baal. Now, Elijah's theological confession, I agree with. Totally. The rain will not come unless the God of Israel says so. Baal does not control the rain. Yahweh controls the rain. But Elijah's claim that there will not be a drop of rain until he says so, I ain't ready to make that claim. Where has Elijah found this type of confidence? Where has he found this level of authority? Moses was met in the desert. He saw God in a flaming bush and was given signs and wonders to perform. And God gave him Aaron to assist with speaking. And he was supposed to go before the Pharaoh and he'd throw down his staff and the staff would turn into a serpent. Moses was given authority with a supernatural encounter in the wilderness with the God of Israel who showed up to him in a burning bush. Where was Elijah's authority given? What encounter did Elijah have with God that gave him this type of confidence to make this type of claim? Elijah's level of faith in this moment is far beyond anything that I've experienced. His confidence that he speaks on behalf of Yahweh far surpasses any confidence that I've ever known. Where did he get it from? When did he meet with God? How did God speak to him? You can answer that question, but only speculate. I don't know where Elijah got this kind of confidence. I just know that he got it. I just know that that when our nation is confronted by these Elijah types, they'll have it. They'll have this type of authority. Furthermore, not only does he have confidence that God will honor his claim and withhold the rain, but he also has the boldness to look Ahab in the face and say it. Leonard Ravenhill used to say that if you were intimate with God, you'd never be intimidated by man. Jen Simba, um, in his book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire, wrote on the passage in Acts chapter 4, which we spoke about recently, where the early church has just been persecuted, um, and they come together to pray. And as they pray, they ask for boldness. And Jim Simba pointed out, Jim Simba, you know, the, was the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle, pointed out that in suffering and persecution, the disciples did not pray for peace. The disciples in suffering and persecution did not pray for safety. They didn't pray that God would take them out of the limelight. They prayed for boldness to stand, to look their persecutor, persecutor to look their, their Ahab in the face and declare truth. Fear of man and fear of God cannot coexist. One or the other will have your heart. Ravenhill, intimacy with God will lead you to a place where you can never be intimidated by man. How's your intimacy with God this morning? How's your boldness? How's your fear of God today? Dr. R.T. Kendall, who was the successor of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, wrote that God trusted Elijah. Point number three, when Elijah steps out, he has confidence, he has boldness, but he also clearly has the trust of God. 
Why did God use Moses? Moses is honored for his humility. Why David? David for his heart of worship, dedication. Why Elijah? God is no respecter of men. That's a clear theological claim. God sees our frame, our frailties, our arrogance. And Elijah's not perfect. Elijah will complain at times. Elijah will pray, take my life. Elijah will say, I'm the only one left. And God will say, no, there's 7,000 others left. He's got, he's got issues. Elijah's got issues, man, but God trusts him. And God will honor his word. Now, our perspectives, my perspective, is limited by the weakness of my intellect, the confines of my ability to understand. I, I don't intend to participate in the debate on how God's foreknowledge or his sovereign will precisely interacts with man's autonomy or man's ability to make free will decisions. That's not my point. Both themes are scriptural. Jeremiah was chosen in his mother's womb. Was Elijah chosen in his mother's womb? I think so. God says there are 7,000 others who have not bowed their knee to Baal, yet God doesn't use the 7,000 others. He uses Elijah. I'm not dictating that if you embrace Elijah-like postures that God's going to use you in the exact way that Elijah was used. That's not the point of the Scripture. But, but, I'm, but I do want to say that I think Elijah participated in the process of becoming Elijah. And you'll have to participate in the process of becoming who God's called you to be. If you want to fulfill the call of God on your life, you'll have to participate in that process. Elijah, like everybody else, participated in the process. He could have refused the process. I think many of us do. But Elijah leaned into the stretching process that God takes us through. When Elijah is frustrated, depressed, and alone, he's still alone with God. Elijah was tempted with sin like you and I are tempted with sin, yet he stood firm with God's help and God's grace. You don't stand before a king with a sure word of God without being tested. Elijah is trusted because Elijah was tested and Elijah participated in the process of becoming Elijah. Have you leaned into God's sharpening? Do you run away from conviction? Do you hide? Elijah types understand that the sharpening of God is what makes you trustworthy. Elijah types understand that the process is painful. It takes fire to purify a metal, you know. Nobody wants fire on their butt. The process is painful, but the process is what makes you trustworthy. Elijah types lean into the correction that comes from the word of God. Elijah types are, they lean into the correction that comes from their spouse. How many times does the Lord anoint your spouse to bring the correction? Somebody say hallelujah. Elijah types don't run when they're confronted. They stand in the uncomfortableness of their own brokenness. Jesus says those who are trusted with little things will be trusted with the big things. I think Elijah was tested, proven, purified by fire. Have you quit on your preparation today? It may be that you're called to shake this nation, to preach 
messages that will save thousands of souls. It may be that you're really called, but if you're not trustworthy, there's an issue. Are you trustworthy this morning? So Elijah confronts Ahab. There will be no rain. God sends him back to solitude. Go hide yourself at the brook Cherith. I'll cause the ravens to bring you food. The scripture says that Elijah obeyed God. God brings Elijah into the limelight only for a moment. Only for, for a spark of a moment in Israel's history, at least as of yet. God brings Elijah into the limelight. Elijah speaks this word. And then Elijah is immediately taken back to the place of solitude. Elijah types aren't concerned with being seen. They'd rather be alone with God. And so Elijah drinks from the brook while rain is withheld. God calls his ravens to bring him bread and meat. And I want you to think through, what are the consequences for Elijah of facing off with the king of Israel? We know that Ahab, from later texts, we know that Ahab was looking for him. We know that Ahab wanted to kill him. We know that Elijah can no longer live in a normal city and live a normal life in Israel and have a normal job and have quiet and peace. Elijah has no longer has the privilege of living a normal life. He has made himself a target because he'd rather be obedient to God than comfortable. But sometimes obedience to God causes you to step into a place where you can never live normal again. Elijah wants obedience to God more than a comfortable and a normal life. He's driven. Elijah is driven by a gut level longing, conviction, passion, desire to see Israel return to the God of Israel. Elijah is not satisfied with the spiritual climate. This is not the faith of their fathers. This is not the faith of Moses. This is not the faith of David. This is not the tradition. Elijah's frustrated and he'll give all of his life, risk all of his life. Quite literally, he will risk his life to obey God to see Israel return to Yahweh. And Ahab hunts his life. And so my point is, is that Ahab. My point is this, is that, that sometimes God asks you to step out into the limelight and proclaim the truth. And you know in your gut that there is a, if you will, a spiritual Ahab that, that, that will want your head for it. Elijah types don't care. Elijah types step in front of a king who has the ability and right to take his life and declare exactly what God said. Because obedience matters more than comfort. And God causes ravens to feed him. Why ravens, God? God, send some ravens to bring me a little extra cash. I might say hallelujah. <laughs> there are times where obedience has consequences, okay? Listen to me. You may find yourself in a work environment that's unethical. And you may feel God probing your heart to go and say something to your boss. And you may know very well that confronting your boss about this matter may cause you to lose your life. But obedience matters more than comfort. And God can make ravens pay your bills. Okay, Elijah's, Elijah's not going to work a normal job and provide for himself. He can't. He's not able to. But God will provide for him even in the midst of the king hunting his head. 
You may find yourself in situations where you know God is calling you to speak out. And you know there will be consequences of speaking out. God is able to take care of your needs. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all else will be added to you. That, what that means is that when you seek first the kingdom of God, God will take care of your needs. The, the immediate context of that passage from the Sermon on the Mount is that you shouldn't worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to drink or how you're going to provide for yourself. God's going to worry about all of that. You just worry about being obedient to the kingdom of God. Elijah could have said, God, if I confront Ahab, he'll kill me. I'll never be able to work. I'll never be able to provide for myself. I'll never be able to live a normal life in public. If I confront Ahab, God, there's consequences. Could have said that. Many of us probably say that. But Elijah types trust and obey. Trust and obey. Obedience above all else. Elijah's not concerned with his own needs being met. That's God's responsibility. He's not concerned with his own popularity. He's more concerned with his popularity in in heaven, you know. He's not concerned with the praise of man. He's more concerned with the praise of God. Elijah's not worried about wealth. Elijah's not going to have wealth while he lives alone at the brook eating from ravens. He's not rolling in the dough in this moment. He's not concerned about comfort. Elijah does not live in a beautiful house in the Middle East in this time. He lives in a cave oftentimes. Elijah's not concerned with pleasure. I'm sure it was hot in the summer and cold in the winter. I'm sure he was lonely and, and bored. Elijah's not concerned with those things. Elijah's concerned with obedience. And when the church gets concerned with obedience, then the church will have the authority and the anointing and the power to step out in our current cultural context and declare the word of God. When we get concerned with obedience, then God will start shaking some stuff up. Obedience can be uncomfortable. But comfortable is not the idol of Elijah. Pleasure is not Elijah's idol. The God whom before I stand. I have one God whom I stand before. I'm going to wrap this up for you. Worship team, somebody will come for me. Elijah lives in a society of rebellion. Did you guys know that society is a word? A society of rebellion? Elijah's Immediate cultural context is perverse, is wicked. God is more frustrated with Israel in this moment than he's ever been. Yet Elijah chooses to live alone and consecrated to God. And when there is no hope for the nation, God calls the man out of solitude, throws him into the limelight, gives him authority, gives him power. What if God is looking for Elijah's today? What if God is looking for an Elijah-like posture in our house today? The scripture on many occasions says that the eyes of God look to and fro. God has not asked you to live in a way that Jesus didn't first live. There's no risk, no sacrifice, no act of obedience that God has called you to that Jesus has not first led us in. 
You want to talk about obedience, talk about obedience to the point of the cross. Obedience to step into the worst, brutal murder of all history. Obedience to get on a cross, receive nails in his hands, crown of thorn crushed into his skull. And Jesus' obedience made no sense to bystanders. This looks like defeat. But obedience in the hand of God can make the victory of hell flip on its head. And when it looked like the most awful moment of history, Jesus on the cross, God crucified, is actually the singular most redemptive moment of all of history. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.